Hi, I'm Deepak Madnani, entrepreneur, problem solver, and amateur barista. I am on a mission to help forward-thinking entrepreneurs succeed and grow by understanding two simple rules. Crisis is a clarity opportunity, and the question is never really the question. Today, I am putting my barista skills to the test and sharing a cup of coffee with resilient problem solvers from all over the world. Let's get started. Peter, what are you drinking this morning? Let's talk about that. Okay, this is going to disappoint you potentially, but it's 100% aqua. And I don't drink enough water. And I had a trainer last year and he said, you need to drink three and a half liters a day. And I struggle. I, you know, I might drink one. I might, I can go without any. And this might disappoint you as well. I do not drink coffee. And here's some logic. I find the taste a little bit too bitter and I'm already bitter and twisted enough. You know what I mean? I do not need that extra ingredient. Well, I want to say two things about that. I want to first declare to the world that Peter Williams is Australian and he says he doesn't drink coffee, number one. So you're, you're about to get lynched by your people. Okay, number, number one. Uh, number two is, of course, coffee tastes bitter because you haven't had it made by me. All right. I will right. even grant you that. I will try one of your coffees. Interesting. So I am, I'm drinking a blend from uh, NOC, another great coffee shop in Hong Kong. Uh-huh. It's their number 18 blend, and it's a uh, Brazil and Colombian mix. So I'm having a party this morning with my coffee. Sounds good. Peter, let's jump in. Um, so great to have you on the show. I'm going to read your bio, and, uh, and then we're going to talk about why is Peter a guest. <laughs> So Peter comes from the corporate world, another, another corporate entrepreneur from my assessment. And um, Peter works with Citibank and he's developed a career in finance and has also become a speaker writer. Uh, he's a ser- serial volunteer and he's an author now. So he humbly forgot to add this. I'm, I'm showing his book here. His book's called Productive Accidents, a playbook for personal and professional adventure. Okay, version 0.0. Love it. Um, it's day one for him. Him and his wife, Catherine, both work in finance and have four children. They support a wide range of causes, including initiatives that promote quality, education, entrepreneurship, empowerment, and the environment. So you can get where this conversation is going to be going. Peter serves on the board of two not-for-profit organizations, Music for Life International in New York, and the Resolve Foundation in Hong Kong. And uh, last year... 2020, COVID, what else are you doing in COVID? He self-published a book that captures um, all the cool things that's happened since arriving in Hong Kong in 2010. And uh, as we said, Productive Accidents is the name of the book. Uh, It's a playbook for personal and professional adventure. And Peter, we will at the end give you a chance to talk more about what you do and how people can contact you, okay? But let's, let's dive in, Peter. I want to first talk about the corporate side of Peter Williams. But actually, yeah, let's, let's, let's first talk about the corporate side of Peter Williams. What's, what's Peter? How's he thinking? And uh, how does he fit in the corporate world? So I, my, my current day job is in Treasury at City, but I, I don't talk to external clients. It's, it's, I, I look after the bank's balance sheet, particularly on the institutional side across APAC, so from India to Japan down to New Zealand. And it's all about liquidity risk, interest rate risk, balance sheet optimization. The concepts don't change. You know, it's more strategic long-term 
long-term stuff, which is good. It suits my sort of mindset. I have time to think about things and, you know, try to get involved in lots of different volunteer work internally and externally and things like that. Contrast that to my wife's role, where she's the CFO of, of Kimco for Asia. And, and being the CFO, it's, it's all about the last cent. And so she relatively has no life. So to me, career tip number one, 80% type careers are better than 100% type careers where you have to get everything down to the last, you know, grain of salt. 80%? Can you, can you say that again slowly? Like my role is 80% accuracy is good enough. It's directional. You know, you're getting the, the major point. You don't have to get down to that last cent. And so you kind of have time to have a life, you know, relatively. You know, Catherine works super hard. You know, she's working you know, nonstop, partly because I think Newport is the head office and, uh, you know, they have calls at, at Funky Times. I do too. I have calls at Funky Times because of New York head office. But somehow it manages to fit a little bit better. Plus, I probably don't sleep as much as I should. And so I squeeze a lot into the edge of each day. But that was a, that was an interesting comment. 80%, did you say career is better than, than 100% career, right? Yeah, like 80 20 principle type thing. Sure. You say, yeah. Cool. Peter, how deliberate was that choice in treasury and timing, uh, you know, and, and work timing? Uh, well, everything is, is kind of like following the path of least resistance. Nothing's been super strategic. It, it's funny, like, so my current wife, Catherine, when, when I went off to university from our hometown in Armadale, New South Wales, Australia, Catherine was a year behind me at school, which is where we met. And then she applied to 50 accounting firms to try and get a cadetship. And, got rejected by, I don't know, 47 of them or something like that. Uh, one of them wrote back and said, you know what, we don't take people straight out of high school, but we take people that have done one or two years of university. And I just finished my first year of university. So I applied to her rejection letter and I got a scholarship from KTMG. And that's how I bought a really good skateboard and my first laptop. And, you know, it's just weird that that kind of opportunistic thing happened. The problem with that was they guaranteed me a job, you know, pretty much. And I didn't have to apply in the campus recruitment. I did internships with them. They gave me a job on graduation. Probably career tip number two is I should have shopped that offer around and gone for maybe a broader range of things. Maybe I should have gone into, I don't know, equities trading or, or funds management rather than just fall on this role that I already had. I probably could have. I think anytime you're going for a job interview and you've already got another offer and you mentioned that in the interview, so oh, by the way, I've also got this lined up. That's that's like, okay, you've just fast-forwarded our due diligence. Someone else wants you. We want you too. So that was probably a mistake. I probably should have pushed that a little bit. But then, you know, I worked at KPMG within, a, you know, one summer vacation. I knew that auditing was boring as anything, you know, not for me, checking somebody else's work. But they're very good at attrition management. So in my exit interview, the partner must see this nine times out of ten. Someone doesn't want to do it, and he steers them back towards it. And I'm like, now I feel like a bit of a sucker because I did steer myself back into it. I did the professional year and I was failing subjects. First time I've ever failed sort of academic stuff. And it was because my mind and body was rejecting the concept of being this auditor. And then I joined AMP Asset Management where I was hands-on helping to, I was kind of like investment accounting control. And it was great because I was using skills that I'd learned at university like SQL. I could inquire in the database. I could join tables. I, find a, I found a, a fraud that no one else probably could have found because I knew how to join data together and find patterns. And the following week, funny thing, the trader who was responsible for that we were playing in an indoor cricket match. And you know cricket, I know cricket. What sort of ball do you think he bowled to me when I was facing him? Give me, give me one word. <laughs> Curve? In cricket. We're not playing baseball here, dude. Tell me. A beamer. 
The Beamer, okay. Beamer doesn't bounce. It's going straight. Luckily, I've got two older brothers. I knew fully what was what was coming at me because, you know, backyard cricket growing up, you know there's going to be something that's going to try and take my head off. And I know how to deflect that. And, you know, so far. Anyway, I've left. I went with them, that same company, AMPS Management, to London, and that was our first adventure, living overseas. And we traveled nonstop because we were there for six months. Probably career mistake number, you know, whatever tip number three was, Catherine took six months off thinking that she had to go back to work because she had a job and she had a responsibility to continue at that firm she was working at. But in reality, we should have just, she should have just quit and we should have just moved to London and we'd probably still be there. Maybe, you know. So we went back after a year. But the benefit of being in there for only six months of work, three months of travel, every long weekend we traveled, you know, so we had it pre-booked. You know, we landed in February. Easter, we were already going to Paris. Then we're going to Barcelona. Then we're going to wherever. Um, so we made the most of it. We came back after doing a big loop of Europe and Ireland and everywhere else, expecting our first child, you know, via Singapore. The financial crisis just happened. I thought, great, we've saved some money. We'll be able to throw it at the market. By the time we landed in Sydney, the market had already bounced. And we went, oh, okay, need to wait for another financial crisis, whatever. But we had our first child and we thought, you know what, that's good. We got our travel out of the system and now we can just settle down and live a, a regular sort of uh, suburban life. But three years later, we were going, you know what, living overseas was more fun. Let's go back to London with a three-year-old, if not Europe. But fast forward, we, we actually got an offer in Singapore, and that was perfect for that stage of life because halfway to Europe, if you really want to go from Australia, low tax, super safe, great for kids. So we ended up thinking we'd go there for two years, and we came two, four, six, eight, nine. We had three more children there. I was bored after three or four years. By then, I, I joined City. After I joined, I went back to Sydney after London joined City in what was called an investment management role, but really it was just buying mortgages off the bank and matching them um, against long-dated uh, liabilities in the insurance vehicle. Then it turned into a risk management role. Then it turned into a treasury role. Then there was a job in Singapore, moved up with them, and it's been regional treasury on the consumer side, then the total bank side. Then I did some more study. I finished Masters of Applied Finance, half in Sydney, half in Singapore. A few years later, I did the Chicago Booth program, mainly just to kickstart my brain. It was turning to mashed potato, living in <laughs> a bit of a goldfish bowl. You need to kickstart it, getting yeah. exposed to different people. And the core idea from Productive Accidents comes from one of the professors there, which I can talk about later or any time. Sure. But that's what's led to this mindset of, of Productive Accidents or Serendipity or Innovation. The formula for innovation is the same as the formula for adventure, having a really diverse network. Okay, great. So, Peter, tell me about the part that doesn't fit with the story now, because I know Peter because of, of how I know Peter, right? So Peter's just shared his banking story, okay? His corporate life story, okay? Really interesting. Uh, there's there's a lot. There's some points that that I want to pick at a bit later, but tell me um, the part of Peter where he's now uncomfortable or trying to figure out, you know, what else do I want to do now? Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me about that. What's that story? Well, I think I'm like you. I'm still trying to work out what to do when I grow up, right? Yeah. And uh, I turned 50 last year, and it's like, okay, we're going to live to 120. What are we going to do for career number two, three, four, five, six? Right. Write a book. Right. That's one aspect. Have a podcast series. That's another. Be a digital nomad. Whatever. You know, it, it's sort of hopefully organic and 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 keeps on evolving. But you know, I moved to Hong Kong, so it's 2010 suddenly felt like I had a lot of time on my hands because I was mm-hmm. studying the Chicago program while working full-time. So it was one week every five or six weeks that I went into class over 21 months. And you, if you're not in class, you're preparing for exams or preparing for lectures or preparing whatever, 
And then you come to Hong Kong and you're like, okay, what am I going to do with all this spare capacity? And you're still curious about lifelong learning. So formal study, let's say that's finished, but informal, there's other ways to learn. I got involved, I started attending the, the TEDx events here in Hong Kong and quickly realized that there was a massive TEDx community here, TEDx Hong Kong, TEDx Wan Chai, TEDx Happy Valley, women, education, youth, etc. And I also, you know, by accident, I guess, met um, Alison Baum when she was moving to, to Hong Kong from New York to set up uh, General Assembly. And then I quickly realized that the people that attend TEDx are naturally curious, creative, entrepreneurial people, massive overlap with the startup community. And then I started attending lots of events there. So General Assembly started with one event per month, then it became one a fortnight, then one a week, and every night of the week. Then I was president of the Chicago Booth Alumni Club, and the first event I hosted was an introduction to the Hong Kong startup scene. Mm. We did that paperclip. And, you know, that was because I think Garage Society was full, and they said, hey, it's cool. This dude, Deepak's just opened up a space down the road. You should call him. And that's how we met. That's how we met, exactly. And um, for me, it was curious to see somebody from the corporate world, because people talk about it, uh, somebody from the corporate world involved in the, in the early, early, early stage startup world. You know, these are, you know, startups are basically the fetuses of, you know, entrepreneurship. You know, it's where ideas, you know, they're, they're not even seeded yet. You know, this is where people are just thinking about thinking about yeah. their idea. You know, and here's here's Peter from the corporate world, literally neck deep in this. What was the attraction, Peter? Here, so a couple of things happened. I, I met a guy, Alfonso Martin, Spanish dude. He's, he actually left City. I think he's become, I think, fairly fairly wealthy off the back of his his vision in in crypto and and Bitcoin and everything else. But he was doing angel investing, like. That served a couple of purposes. So one of the examples that sort of caught my imagination was he's got elderly parents back in a village in Spain, and they didn't have home care. So he invested in a home care nursing business, which and that business bought a home that his parents lived in. They ran the admin. Suddenly they had the care they needed, and the whole community benefited from that, and it had an income stream. So all of these dots connected in his life. So I thought that was cool. It solved multiple purposes, gave him peace of mind, everything else. Then he introduced me to Wei Hopeman, who you probably know. She also works with, you remind me, I think she actually rents space in your, in mm, your Harvard so, yeah. Capital, Harvard Capital, whatever. And Wei was the head of City Ventures at the time, based in, in Shanghai. I think they eventually shut down City Ventures for Asia. Now it's, you know, it's more US centric, but they do have some people, including Victor Alexiev, who's based in Singapore, running their D10X program, which is kind of like an you know, internal accelerator. And, when I met Wei, she was one of the committee members or something of Angel Festival, which was, you know, a startup sort of fun uh, angel investing group or club okay. um, yep. in Shanghai, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong. And what was cool about that is you get to see 10 to 20 pitch decks very summarized per month. And as members, you vote on those and you allocate your six points. You give three to Deepak, two to someone else and one to another. The members add those up and the, the highest numbers are invited to come in and, and give a physical presentation. So we used to do those events here in Hong Kong and you could invest individually or collectively. So we did a couple of angel investing deals through that. And then I, I met someone through TEDx who did another angel investment deal. None of these angel deals have done anything, you know, but that's kind of to be expected. But there were other side benefits. So the first angel investment deal we did was in um, an independent fashion platform out of Singapore by Lady. Um, Lisa Von Tang, she had a, a startup called Nossum where she was curating independent designers across Asia 
you know, she'd find someone in the back streets of Bangkok that was making 12, I don't know, bespoke blazers per year. They didn't want to scale, but they were just, you know, but they didn't also didn't have the time or energy to build a website or build a, a following or anything like that. So Lisa was trying to do that for a lot of independent fashion designers. My two eldest daughters ended up going down there and staying with her and becoming kind of a mentor and giving her, giving them an exposure to the startup world, doing everything from fashion shoots to, to, you know, updating the website and, and fundraising, you know, whatever else they were doing. Um, so that's kind of priceless. So even though that investment didn't work out and she's gone on to become her own solo designer, which has been more successful, but we didn't follow on on that. We thought, you know what? We've tried, you know, it didn't quite work out, but you know, good luck and we'll try to support in other ways. But, you know, so there were benefits to just being connected to that, that whole scene. And then I was trying to build a bridge between what I was doing there with the grassroots startup scene and what could happen at work. Because I went to a, actually an internal training program on, it was on leadership or something. And, one of the activities was write down your networks and, you know, in, in three broad categories, your professional, your strategic, your operational. And there were people on my desk that were writing down a few individual names. I was writing down categories of networks. I was going, you know, there's my Chicago Booth alumni network. There's my startup network, my TEDx network. And I went across all of the different categories and I was going off the page and all of these things. That's what made me realize I'm not using my network in my day job. That seems like a missed opportunity, you know. Yeah. This technical dude that should be probably in sales or business development or whatever, right? Mm. So that started a conversation with the head of the private bank, Basam Salem. Uh, he's now retired, where I tried to connect him into people like, you know, just groups like Nest and said, look, come and check this out. You know, they've got their, their own sort of ecosystem where they've got startups using shared facilities and, and location. You know, do you think this is interesting? To me, I thought it was interesting. If we could maybe get entrepreneurs to come in and just tell their story, you know, once a month, three entrepreneurs to say, look, this is where I screwed up. This is where, where at the bank, right? Yeah, at the bank. Bring yeah. them in and get them to talk to high net worth individuals. And, and the so reason behind that, sorry, Peter, the reason yeah. behind that is you wanted the bank to get exposure to startups because? Well, okay. So here's, here's the way I would justify it. If I was, let's say I had a billion dollars and, and I'm going into a private bank. If I went in and my relationship manager, all he does is talk about insurance. ETFs and bonds, I'd be kind of bored. But if they said, look, we'll let you invest 0.1 of a percent of your wealth in startups, you're going to lose it all, but that's okay. You know, if you're interested, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll give you exposure to some cool stuff. But to me, from the bank's point of view, the, the value could be it would help that, that client to reveal what they're passionate about. So let's say you've got a, an entrepreneur that comes in and talks about furniture design in, in China or, you know, co-working spaces in Hong Kong mm. or their passion for coffee or whatever, you know, like someone like Deepak. And they say, hey, that dude reminds me of me. I want to invest in him or I want to be a mentor to him. And the bank gets nothing out of that apart from just facilitating, you know, an introduction. But if, let's say, the bank had paid attention and they realized, oh, hang on, there's this guy, Peter, who's got a billion dollars and he loves skateboarding and BMX. And I've heard that there's this cool event in Montpellier in France where there's 500,000 people that convert for a five-day BMX skateboarding festival. Wouldn't it be cool if we curate that tour for him and we just offer it to him, hey, here are the flights, here's the accommodation, and here are the tickets. Are you interested? I'd be like, would I ever go to any other bank on the planet? So, Peter, let me uh, – I'm smiling here because there's this is uh, textbook Peter. And I don't mean textbook as in Peter's a textbook. No, I mean this is who Peter is. So I want to pause here because you've shared so much. I want to pause here. I want to make sure that 
we extract what you've shared and people uh, have followed what you've shared, okay? Peter may have shared a story of a typical expat banker's history in Hong Kong, sorry, in, in Asia, okay? And Europe and all that, okay? That trajectory. But what he's sharing parallel is um, Peter has always, while one foot's been in the corporate world, the other foot's been in his curiosity and discovery world, okay? And this is with all the guests that are on the show. They all have this innate characteristic that I admire, okay? And it's, and it's for us to emulate, to understand, and to pick on, and to resonate with. This curiosity and discovery kind of superpower that Peter just has innate in him. And he talks so casually about, but it's actually a, a superpower, is what's allowing him to, to A, be so relaxed, but B, just clear on, on how he's approaching almost these two facets, you know, it's two, the, the uh, two sides of the coin that is Peter, the, the uh, corporate guy and the, uh, and the creative guy, okay? And how Peter's navigating the two, these aren't conflicting. You know, this isn't something where he's hiding the fact that he's a corporate banker. So in the startup world, I will share the fact that one of the, the poisons of the startup world has been, you know, the story of the banker who has 10, 20, 30,000 US dollars to, to blow and um, he invests in a startup because it's cool. And it's a story that when he goes out to parties, he talks about, I invest in a startup. No idea how to, how to add value. No idea how to. And, and I'm not, again, degrading bankers here. I'm just saying that this is typically what happens mm-hmm. uh, when you're chasing. A lot of this word is you can use, people use the word dumb money and, and all that fun stuff. Okay. But the point here is, uh, you know, because that was my question. Why? I mean, originally when I first met Peter, what's this banker, you know, doing, leading, you know, the startup world? Can you please get out of the way? You know, that's the, that's the bias, right? But it's, it's almost like it's three conversations in and you, you talk, oh, and, and, and Peter's a banker, but he then talks about passion. He's not about, oh, how do I sell more product for the bank? He didn't say that. He said, how do I help my clients? basically unlock their, their passions. So the genuineness of Peter is in tying his background. For, so it doesn't matter who you are and where you come from. So that's, that's a key message. It doesn't matter who you are and where you come from. That was part one of my interview with Peter Williams, author, speaker, writer, and serial volunteer. You can hear part two of the interview on the next episode of Deepak Has Coffee where Peter returns to discuss the importance of a positive money mindset and how it can impact your entrepreneurial efforts. During this conversation, we explore making a habit of creativity and risk, the true definition of a lean startup, and the importance of collaboration to create bigger, better results. You can learn more about Peter via his website in the show notes. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Did you have any moments of clarity? I would love for you to rate and review this episode. Your feedback is crucial to tailoring this content for your growth needs. If you would like to hear more, please be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn and or message me on dm at deepakscoffee.com.